Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Uh, Lord, we just thank you so much for this time this morning together as we're gathered here. Lord, we, we come because we want to worship you. Uh, we want to open up your word and we want to hear from you today. Lord, I pray that as we settle our hearts and prepare our minds, Lord, that you would speak to us through these words this morning. Lord, we thank you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 1. If there is a dispute between men and they come to the court that the judges may judge them and they just and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. So just so you know, this is kind of how it would work, is that there was a panel of judges in every in every city, and, and uh, it would range anywhere from three at the at the, the least to all the way up to when they finally would get the Sanhedrin together would be 71 uh, judges or members of the Sanhedrin. So somebody, if there was a dispute or something, a transgression that had happened between two men, they would come before the judges. Uh, And usually they would say, if you ever see it says they would come to the city gate, Um, it was a place that was established where the judges would actually sit and hear disputes. And it says that they would come together and they would listen and they would judge them. They would justify the righteous and they would condemn the wicked. And um, boy, you know, when I read that this week, my first thought was, well, yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to judge what's right from what's wrong, right? Isn't that what we still do? Isn't that what we're still supposed to do? The fact is that in our culture right now, we don't know how to do that anymore because we don't know anymore what is righteous and what is wicked. If there's no standard, if there's no foundation on which right and wrong is based or measured, how can we discern between guilty and innocent. If there's no standard, if there's nothing to measure against, then how do you know what's right and what's wrong, what's righteous and what's wicked? Let me give you an example. If you go to Joanne's Fabrics, anybody ever been there? Yeah. Okay, yes. Well, <laughs> go, go today, later, and see. Um, and you go to buy fabric, you go and you pick out this big bolt of cloth and you bring it up and you, want, and you say, I want three yards. And on there, they've got a table. And on that table is what? A ruler, right? And on that ruler, it's divided up into inches, inch one, inch two, inch three, inch four, and so on. Um, and, and what they do is they, if you, you come up and you say, I would like three yards of this fabric and they'll take it and they'll roll it out. Um, 36 is one inch, uh, one yard, you know, another 36, another 36, so that you know that they've just measured against a standard that we all recognize and say, an inch is an inch is an inch. It's about like that. So 36 inches or is a yard. You know that when they roll that out, measure it against the ruler, you're getting three yards, exactly what you asked for. But what if they just said, you know what? Um, We're not going to measure against this standard measure that we all agree on. We're just going to say, there you go. Now, how do you know whether you got what it is you wanted? You don't because there wasn't anything that it was standardized that it was measured against. You got whatever that person thought was the right amount of fabric, right? That's where we are. 
We have lost the standard on which we measure what's right and what's wrong. And when I say we, I mean our culture. Maybe not we, you and I, but we as a culture, we've lost that standard of measure. And so we no longer know how to ascertain what's righteous and what's wicked. We do it based on how we feel. Well, I feel like that's right, or I feel like that's wrong. But here's the problem. How each one of us feels is different than how the other person feels. Let's do a little experiment right now. (laughs) All right, on the count of three, I want you to just say out loud what you feel is the best fast food restaurant in town. One, two, three. See, now that everybody seemed different. That's because we all feel differently about what the truth is in that situation, right? Everybody said something different. Now, if we were all on the same standard, we all would have said Culver's. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing is that what you believe right now, what you feel is the truth, may actually change even next month. You may actually feel like right now Culver's is the best, but next month, maybe you'll go and you'll have a bad experience at Culver's, and guess what? All of a sudden, you're thinking Chick-fil-A is way better, (laughs) and now your truth has changed. Do you understand? We say this. I hear this all the time. More and more so, speak your truth. Speak your truth. You ever hear that? You ever say that? You need to speak your truth. The thing is, you can't speak your truth. You have to speak the truth. And in order to speak the truth, you have to know what the truth is. We have a standard of measure. It's called the word of God, by which we measure everything. They were able to say, this is what we're doing. We're taking what God has taught us, his commandments, and we're basing the righteous and the wicked on what the word says. They laid the word against everything that was going on. And that's how they were able to judge. If you don't have a standard, then your judgments are not righteous. And here's the danger. When we dismiss a universal right and wrong and judge based on what you feel is right or wrong then you risk acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. And that, according to Proverbs 17, 15, is an abomination to God. He says right there, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent is an abomination, Proverbs 17, 15. And so if we are judging the righteous and the wicked based on how we feel, if we're trying to say this is right and this is wrong, this is true and this isn't true based on how we feel, my truth will be different than your truth. And it's not actually my truth. It's simply my opinion, which doesn't really carry much value, does it? Imagine... um, I went home and I made up a whole bunch of Aaron dollars. <laughs> and, and I looked at those Aaron dollars and I was like, man, I've got a million of these. I'm a millionaire. And what if I took those Aaron dollars and I went to the store and they were like, oh, that's going to be $44. And I just started counting out Aaron dollars and saying, no, these have value because I think they do. And they're like, this is not based on anything. So they have no value at all. And that's my opinion. 
my opinion is what I think, and I think my opinion has value, but to somebody else, it may not have any value at all because there's no, it's not based on anything. But truth is based on a standard of measure. They were able to come in and say, we're able to judge because we're doing it against God's commandments. And so this is what would happen. People would come and they would um, bring a dispute before the judges. And it says in verse two, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten that that the judge will cause him to lie down, be beaten in the presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. All right, so what would happen is if they heard the case of what was going on in the dispute, and if there was a transgression against one and it was determined that this guy was guilty, then they would assign a punishment. Now, at this time, they didn't have jails and prisons in which they would say, okay, you're sentenced to this many years. What they would say is, we're going to take out the rod uh, and you're going to receive, based on the severity of the offense, the number of blows that we determine. And so that's why it says based on the number of blows. And so it could be four or 10 or 20. Uh, we're going to see it, it couldn't exceed a certain number, but the number of blows was based on the severity of the transgression. And so they would then say to this guy, okay, you're going to lay down here, um, And in the presence of the judge and everybody, actually, the the person who was uh, found to be innocent was there as well. And they would take this stick, a rod, and they would hit the person however many times it was determined that that was their punishment uh, or that that was was what they felt befitted the crime. So um, then the really neat thing is that after that was done, it was done. The punishment had been meted out. The person had accepted the punishment, and it was done now. And then they were returned back into fellowship. Isn't that cool? Okay. So, verse 9 says, 40 blows he may give him, and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight. And so what God had said to Moses, who now passed this on, was to say, okay, based on the severity of the transgression, you can assign a certain number of blows, but it can never be more than 40 because 40 crosses the line into humiliating the person. Now, you may think that for some crimes, 40 blows wasn't a bad enough penalty, right? Well, remember, this wasn't the only penalty for crimes. That serious crimes came with death sentences, Remember, don't forget that there, God did assign capital punishment to certain types of very serious crime, especially crimes where a life was lost. This was for those crimes or, or transgressions that were less um, bad, um, but still required some kind of punishment. But he said it can never be more than 40 blows so that that person would never be humiliated. They'd be, they'd be corrected and punished, but never humiliated. Now, later on, the, the um, judges would get together and they would say, the Pharisees would actually come together and they'd say, you know what? We're not going to do 49, uh, 40. We're going to do 39. They actually called it 40 minus 1. 40 minus 1, which is how many? 39. Excellent. You guys are awake. Cool. <laughs> 39 blows. Now, you know why they would do this? To, for us, that would seem like, oh, maybe that they're practicing grace. They're, they're giving grace to that person. But it actually wasn't grace. Uh, I read that and I see that as legalism because what they said was, okay, God said we could give them 40, be, 40 uh, hits uh, or blows, but 
if we go over 40, then we're transgressing what God said. So to make sure that we don't get uh, a little like uh, over exuberant in our being, is like we're you know, hitting them and hitting them to make sure that we don't go over that. We're going to say, we're only going to give 39 in case we miscount. In case we miscount in the blows, we're going to only go with 39, not 40. I mean, wouldn't you have to count just as carefully to get to 39? As the 40, I mean, I mean, what if you're hitting, what was that, 38? <laughs> you know what, let's just start over. Let's just start over. I lost count. <laughs> the thing is, what they were trying to protect themselves, they were saying, well, you know what? Um, in case the person doing the beating gets a little bit too emotionally charged and can't get control of their emotions in the situation, let's just make it the rule that we only do 39 instead of 40. Rather than to teach that that person actually remain in control of their emotions and not respond emotionally through the beatings. Rather than to focus on that, they said, we'll just put rules in place that, that the person doesn't have to have control over their emotions, but rather we just control them through these rules. That's legalism. I know a little bit about this. I grew up in a really small town in a very conservative church in the 70s and in the 80s. And in my very small town, in my very conservative church in the 80s, believed, rightfully so, that sexual uh, intimacy or any involvement between anyone other than a husband and a wife was sexual immorality. So to help all of us teenagers from not being entangled in some kind of inappropriate relationship, they said no dancing. Because dancing led to improper sexual behavior. And if, you, and if you've seen Footloose, <laughs> that was a town. Rather than to say we're going to teach our teenagers, what the relationship that God ordains and how he feels about that and how it's a gift, not like a punishment, but a gift of, of that he's given to us, a special gift of sexuality, which we've talked about uh, on Family Church. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Rather than to impress upon all of us that, they simply said, here's the rules you need to follow, no dancing. And it was legalism. So it didn't allow us to grow in our understanding and our faith and relationship with Jesus. It was just rules that we had to follow. Instead of saying, we're going to teach you how to control your emotions based on what the Bible says, they said, no dancing. And I, you know what? Um, that was hard for me because, you know, I got to dance. <laughs> I especially remember it because I was a junior in high school, and that was when we had our prom when I was a junior. And, uh, and my church said, we're going to do an alternative that won't include dancing, but will still be fun, and we need to get a count. So how about all the people who want to attend our party? Why don't you all stand up so we can get a count? And I just sat in my chair. I was like, no, 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 I'm not standing up. I'm not standing up. Um, that's what they're doing. I, when I see this, I, I, I don't mistake it for them being, oh, like we're being grace-filled. They were being legalistic rather than to say, we'll help you learn how to take your emotions into control so that you don't overbeat someone, you don't transgress the law. They said, we're just going to put a law in place. 
only 39 blows, which again, you still have to count really carefully to get to 39 rather than 40. Why not just count really carefully the first time to 40? So then it says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. This is just like a strange little verse that they just drop, drop in there, right? You shall not muzzle the ox. So let me just explain it really quick. Um, the, what he's, and literally what he's talking about is in order to grind up their grain, they would put it on the kind of the, like the threshing floor, and then they would have an ox kind of like trample it. And as the ox trampled it, does that sound like an ox? <laughs> it would break up the chaff and the kernels and would open up all the wheat, right? And, uh, um, and then what they would do is they would gather up all this broken wheat and they would take it outside and put it on a big sheet and then they would go and throw it up in the air and the wind would blow away all the chaff and all the wheat would drop down and then they'd have wheat. Now, while the ox was trampling down all this wheat, he's literally looking at all of this food right in front of him. So to and you know what would an ox want to do? It would want to eat some of it while it's some of the the wheat that it's producing. The ox would want to partake of as it's trampling out. And so, what Moses says is, it would be cruel for you. It would be not a good thing for you to muzzle the ox so that it can't partake in any of what it's producing for you. Now, guess what the application for us is. How many of you have an ox? Ha <laughs> 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 we all laugh. You do. It's me. Because this is what Paul says, okay? This I'm going to just read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, it says, For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, he asks? Or... Does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing that we reap your material things? And Paul is talking about their pastors and saying, those who are sowing spiritual things, is it wrong for them to get material things back? All right? Now, this is, these are the verses that I really, really like in the Bible. <laughs> now, this is Paul. He's writing to Timothy, right? And Timothy was a young pastor. And he says, in 1 Timothy 5, he says, let the elders who rule well be counted of a double honor. Double honor, Jan. <laughs> Especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so I don't actually have to create application for this verse in Deuteronomy. Paul's done an actually very good job of it. So today when you leave, if you could just give us your tax returns <laughs> so that we get a very accurate number. No, I think that, you know, I, I'm very grateful to be here and to be at this church, and you all are very generous. And there are some, and, and many churches, and I can't think of very many, um, oh, maybe a few who have pastors that they don't pay at all. And maybe it's out of necessity. Um, but um, it's kind of an individual mindset, okay? Churches can be good at this, but as an individual, you have to be thinking about this. Remember we talked about the idea that you give to God, and then God gives to his ministers, 
right? And so on an individual basis, you're not thinking about what you pay me or what you pay your pastor or anything like that. You're thinking about, I give to God an offering because he asked me to, and he asked me to do it from a willingness in my heart and not grudgingly. And then I trust God to do with it and to take care of his oxes um, as he sees fit. Amen? Let's move on. It, uh, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall, be married to, shall not be married to a stranger outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall go in to her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Okay. So here's, this, here's a, the, a breakdown of the situation. You've got a husband and a wife. They don't have children yet. The husband dies, okay? Living with them in their house is the husband's brother, right? See, they live together. Now, we know by that that this is a man who's not married because if he was married, he wouldn't be living with his brother's family. He'd be living with his parents in the basement. But at this time, he would be living with his own wife and his own family. And so it wouldn't be that they'd be dwelling together in the same house. So this is talking about a brother who's not married. Now, if his, his brother dies and his brother hasn't had a son to carry on his family name, the brother is supposed to go in and marry his brother's wife and go in and produce an heir that would carry on his brother's name. Because that's important. To God. Remember, he's connected the uh, land and inheritance to families. Remember, when he goes into the promised land, he's saying, okay, this tribe gets this parcel, this tribe gets this parcel, this tribe gets this parcel. Every tribe received a parcel except for the Levites who were to be the ministers. So then within the tribes, each family was given a section of land, and it was the land and the inheritance, the passing it down, that connected families, that actually, that you could trace families back through their lineage, partially through their land inheritance, okay? So it was very important. Now, um, this says then, uh, if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders and say, my, brother's, my, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name for his brother in Israel. He, was not, he will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. So um, they would come to him and they would say, oh, we're really sorry to hear that your brother passed away, but you have to marry his wife and produce an heir. Now he could say no. He had the option to say no. Why would he say no? Any number of reasons we could think of. I, I've lived with this woman in the same house for 15 years, and I can't stand her. I've tasted her food. She has hummus breath in the morning. <laughs> Any of those. Or, or sometimes just greed. Because if you had a brother and he was older than you, he had a portion of the inheritance that would come to him. Now, if he didn't produce an heir and there was no one to give that inheritance to, who would it go to? Me. I'd be next in line. I would get his share of the inheritance unless he produces an heir or else I produce an heir for him and his inheritance goes to his son and I would lose out on that. I would only get the portion that would come to me, which by the way would be less than my oldest brother. The oldest brother got more than one share. I think he got a, a triple share. 
of the inheritance, right? And so if it came to me, I might say, no, I'm not going to marry her and produce a child because if I do that, then I won't get my brother's inheritance and I really, really, really want it. And it was greedy. So the wife would go to the gate and go to the elders and she would say, my husband's brother refuses to do the duty of a husband's brother and he won't uh, make me his wife. And then the elders of the city will call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her. So he, he makes his case. They're like, no, come on. This is the right thing to do. You know, Moses told us to do this. If, you know, it does this things for your family. And if he just keeps saying, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. Then his brother's wife, verse 9, shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answers and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. Wow. So in the presence of all of the elders at the gate and anybody else who was there, she was to walk up, take off his sandal, and then spit in his face and make this announcement. So that remember, he could say no, but he would have to say no, knowing that these were the consequences, that he was going to be basically humiliated in front of the entire city where she would come up and take off his sandal and spit in his face. And, you know, spitting in anybody's face, we get that. that, that no, one, no one has ever been spit in the face by someone and been like, oh, thanks, I, I, now I know how much you care. No, it's an insult, right? It's always been an insult. In fact, when they were leading Jesus to the cross, they were spitting in his face to insult him and, and shame him. It's always been a thing that if you spit in someone's face, but what's the sandal part? Like, why would, they, why would she remove the sandal from his foot? Uh, well, there's lots of ideas. Um, the two that I like is that one of them uh, was, again, connected to the land. Remember that God was giving them this land. How often do we hear in this, the land that God has given you to possess? This is the land. You're going into the land that God has given you to possess over and over and over again. We see that God was connecting his people to the land, right? And remember in Deuteronomy chapter 11, he said, before, he was kind of outlining the whole promised land. And he was saying, everywhere that the sole of your foot touches, I will give to you. Right? And so it was kind of a symbolic way of them taking off the sandal of his foot saying, you're giving up your inheritance to the land by, remove, by us removing your sandal. The other, the other idea kind of connected to that is that only slaves or servants didn't wear shoes or sandals. And so by taking off a sandal, it was kind of a symbolic way of saying, you're no longer kind of on the upper end of this uh, landowner part. You're giving up the rights to that. You're kind of becoming um, at the level of a, of a servant. So it was a big deal for anyone to say no to this. Um, but that was the process, that she would take off his sandal. And then in that sense, though, he was actually free to go on and marry whoever he wanted, as was she. That was the process that was in place. That's what they're, they're talking about right here. <clears throat> and then verse 10, look at this. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Can you imagine that on like that welcome mat in front of your, <laughs> your door? You would walk up, the house of them, his sandal was removed. Oh, but then you would know exactly what he did. At least you'd know who you were dealing with, right? Imagine a, like he had to have that as a placard hanging on the, on the door of his house so that when you went there, you'd be like, oh, you didn't marry your sister or your husband's wife. Well, you know, there it is. Now, (coughs) 
Anybody read ahead? <laughs> All right. Now, if two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, then you shall cut off her hand and your eyes shall not pity her. That's what it says in my Bible. Um, in, in several others, it says private parts. Um, in, in the King James, it's worth reading. So I'm just going to read it to you. And putteth forth her hand and taketh him by the secrets. <laughs> King James has a way, doesn't it? Of, of making it nice. In Hebrew, the, it literally says in Hebrew, his shameful parts. Now, the reason God uses that language is because God, again, is reiterating the idea that any, any woman grabbing onto the secrets of any man that wasn't her husband was a shameful act. Right, because he is placing that idea of sexual intimacy way up here, saying it's husband and wife, and that is it. And anything outside of that is shameful, even if she's grabbing to protect her husband in some battle. I, I just can't do the motion. <laughs> even if she's <laughs> trying to protect her husband in a fight, even at that, God would say those are the shameful parts. Now, you, but you might look at that and be like, man, that's... Well, very specific. I mean, it doesn't, God doesn't, by the way, prohibit pulling hair or, or like a, a, po, a throat to a, a throat punch. You know, that's what I recommend. If you're trying to protect your husband, go for the throat. <laughs> but it's very specific and it's very serious, right? He, he's very specific about where she's grabbing, but it's also very serious. And you, there, her hand is to be removed and that, and you're not to pity her. Like, here's the thing. It is the specifics that makes it so serious because she wasn't just randomly trying to fight off. She was intentionally going for the, 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 the secrets. <laughs> See that in God's eyes, she was intentionally trying to damage him and prevent him from being able to produce children or any future generations. And God takes that kind of thing extremely serious. You understand that God said, I created life, life belongs to me. So anyone who takes life, even life like this, that hasn't had a chance to be lived yet, God says, I take extremely seriously. And so the consequence to this woman who was damaging future children who haven't been born, who haven't been given a chance to live yet, he takes that extremely seriously. It's specific and it's serious. But there's another reason as well. And we kind of touched on this already. It was this idea of the um, land or inheritance or family line, right? God had said that the Messiah was going to come and save his people. He said there was going to, there's going to be one who comes and he's going to save your people. In fact, I'm going to read out of 2 Samuel 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. It says, 
when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring after you who shall come from, he's talking to David, um, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so the Jewish people knew that God had said the Messiah was going to come through the line of David and he was gonna establish his throne forever. Now we know, because now we have the New Testament, we know exactly who that was, don't we? Who was the Messiah that God sent? Yes, Jesus, that's right. But it was very important to God that when Jesus came and ultimately claimed to be the Messiah, that he could be traced back in his lineage and inheritance to David. When you read the genealogy of David, uh, excuse me, of, uh, of Jesus in the New Testament, it's traced through Joseph and it's traced through Mary both of whom lead directly back to David. And without these inheritance records, without this record of, of land being passed from family member to family, from son to son to son, and all the way down, it would be extremely difficult for anyone to be able to point back and say, oh, Jesus actually did come through the Mas- come through David. But imagine if somebody wanted to destroy that, and we see it through the Old Testament, where Satan steps in and he's like, you know what? All I have to do is cut off this line. All I have to do is stop this from happening and then nobody will be able to show that the Jesus actually came from or the Messiah will come from whomever. But God continues to step in and make a way. You know, this does sound very serious. God intended it as a deterrent from women doing this. Guess how many women there's a record of actually ever doing this or this happening to? None. There's no biblical record. There's no Jewish historical record that any woman's hand was ever cut off because she reached out and grabbed another man's secret place. It worked. It worked. All right. 13, you shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. So he, he, right here, what would happen is people would come to the marketplace and you would have people whose main goal there was to make money and they would do it however they, they could. And so they would have two sets of weights. Instead of having one standard set of measure, a pound is a pound, they would have one weight that looked like it weighed a pound, but it would be lighter, and one that will look like a pound, but it would be heavier. And so then when you came and said, oh, well, give me three pounds of flour, what they would do is they would put the heavier weight on the scale on this side, and they'd scoop the flour out on the other side. And because this weight is heavier, you'd actually get less flour. And then when they took their weights to the marketplace to buy something, they would say here, and they would give them the lightweight so that they would actually be getting more than what they were supposed to get paid for. And so what he's saying is he's warning them against cheating each other. Now, we don't buy things with weights uh, like that anymore, but have you ever gone to the store and bought a a, a full bag of potato chips? (laughs) And then you're thinking, oh, this is a big full bag. And then you open it up, and it's like half full. I feel cheated. Well, not me, because I don't eat potato chips. But I heard from a friend. (laughs) I heard from a friend, Deirdre, that... 
that's exactly what happens is this idea that when you open it up and you think it was like the same bag that they would use 10 years ago, but now you open it up and it's like, I got to reach way down in there to get them out of there, right? Because we're, it feels like we're being cheated. There's deception. The other thing that God says is you're going to have a standard set, which means not only are you going to be honest in your dealings with one another, but that you're going to be known for being honest, with one another. So it's not just you're going to benefit one another, but when you do business with other people, they're going to know that you are an honest people. And you know what happens as a result of that? God blesses that. I'm going to tell you a story. I know this guy. He and his family owned, owned this uh, construction company. And they would give a bid to a client about what it would cost them to do this project. And he said to me that they would not add work order, change orders along the way. And if it came to the end of the project and they spent less money than what they quoted, if it cost them less money than what they had quoted, they would give it back. They'd give back the difference. Do you know they got known for being an honest company and everybody wanted to use that company to do their business and their business exploded billions of dollars annually. Is that amazing? God says, not only are we to be honest, but we will be known to be honest, and by that we will be blessed. Amen? I mean, think about it. I don't own a business. Do you guys, if you own a business, there you go. That's very direct application. If you don't own a business, here's the thing. Everyone around you, everyone that you interact with should know that you are an honest person. And so when they need an honest person, and I hope it's all the time, they know exactly who to come to. They know who can help them, who will pray for them. Because not only are we different, as the word keeps on saying, we're, we're different, we're sh- we should be known for being different. You know, as you ever have a friend at your workplace or your school uh, or, or wherever you interact with your, your book club, I guess, and um, you try sometimes to share your faith and they're like, that's great for you. I'm glad. I'm glad you have something. I have got my own thing going on. Um, but when there's a problem that's beyond their own thing, do they come to you and say, I I." I remember you're a religious person. <laughs> I heard that you were religious. Could you, could you pray for me? Yes. But you know what you can say? Let's pray right now and see what happens because they'll, they'll be like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> but it's an amazing opportunity. Can I pray for you right now? Oh, all right. Okay, and what, a, what an, a, an amazing opportunity. And it was because you were known to be a person that they could come to, that they could pray with. This says in verse 15, you shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord God is giving you. We are to have a perfect and just measure. Well, we already talked about that this morning, didn't we? What is the perfect and just measure that we are supposed to have in our house? You're holding it in your laps right now. It is the word of God. He says, you are to have a perfect and just measure, and we do. It's the word of God by which we measure everything. God, what am I supposed to think about this? Well, it's in the word. Oh, how am I supposed to feel about that? It's in the word. How am I supposed to act against the neighbor who just is such a pain in my neck 
that I watch, I just want to, nah. And God says, love him. What? I can't love him. I can't stand him. I don't feel like loving that guy. And God says, oh, you don't feel like it. It's okay then. God says love isn't a feeling. It's an action. It's an action. So act loving towards your enemy, the Bible says. Now, hopefully your neighbor isn't your enemy, but maybe you don't get along. We're supposed to act lovingly. Act lovingly to the people who don't believe what you believe. Act lovingly in, to those who, who march against you. Hold up signs and say that you're hateful. Love them. The Bible says love them. Verse 16, for all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously are an abomination to the Lord. That's, that's one of those things that says that God hates his people, not people who you know, uh, have just and perfect measures, but those who act unrighteously. Then he says in verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear flanks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. If you were here like 14 years ago, it feels like when we went through Exodus, you'll know the story, but here's what happened. The, the um, children of Israel had come out of Egypt. Literally, God splits the Red Sea so that they can walk through. And we're talking like 3 million people, men, women, and children, coming through uh, the Red Sea, which has been split open. And they get across just as the Egyptian army comes down to try and to basically kill them. And they get into the Red Sea, and God just closes it all up onto the Egyptian army and drowns the whole army. Now, the, the Israelites are on the other side and man, can you imagine? I mean, they're scared, they're tired, they're fatigued. They're walking from the edge of the Red Sea over to trying to get to Mount Sinai. And while they're there, this Amalekite army sees them coming and says, you know what we should do? We should attack them, but not head on. Let's go around the back and let's just pick off the weak, the sick, the stragglers and the children. Let's start there. And God says that is completely dishonorable. So what he says to Moses is, go up onto that high hill and tell Joshua to take the army in and go in and battle against the Amalekites. And so he does. And what happens is that when Moses is up on the army, when he holds his arms up, Joshua prevails in battle. But when he gets tired, I mean, have you ever tried to hold one worship song? I'm like, I need Aaron. I need her you know, one worship song, but so he's there and he's like, he's prevailing in battle. But when his arms start to get tired and they go down, the Amalekite army starts to win. And so his brother, Aaron, and another guy, her, they come up and they get a a rock and they sit Aaron on it. And then they hold up his arms. Still works. It still works because as he has his arms up, they prevail in battle over the Amalekites. And it says on the Amalekites, they killed a bunch and the rest all run away. Now, Here's the thing. God's reminding them about these Amalekites. See, what will happen is later on, 400 years after that, the Amalekites are still around. They're kind of a constant thorn in the, the side of the Israelites, right? So 400 years later, 
Samuel, the prophet, comes to Saul and he says, Saul, God said he wants you to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites, everything, all the sheep, all the cattle, the king, all the people, everything. They are a blight and they need to be wiped out and I'm using you to do it. And so Saul goes in against the Amalekites and he, he defeats the army, but he keeps all the choice cattle and sheep and he lets the king, King Agag, live. And Samuel comes and he's like, you know, so how to go, Saul? And Saul's like, yep, we did everything you asked us to do. Completely wiped him out. And then you hear, <laughs> and Saul's like, but uh, what about the sheep? He's like, oh, I didn't think you meant the sheep. And also King Agag. Now Saul let him go. Now Samuel eventually tra- tracks him down and kills him, but not before he's able to have a son who then carries on the Amalekite line, right? So they were not obedient to do what God had told them to do, and the Amalekites are still going. 500 years after that is the story of Esther, where there's a man in the camp, uh, in the kingdom of the king, who comes to him and he says, you know what we need to do? We need to wipe out all these Jews. Haman, his name was. Haman was an Amalekite. Over and over and over again, we see the people of God battling against the Amalekites when God had said on more than one occasion that they were to wipe them out completely, but they left remnants of it out there and they kept coming back and they kept coming back. He says, therefore, it shall be with you when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of, the, of, of Amalek from under the heavens and you shall not forget. And so he says, now when you get into the land and you have the opportunity to wipe them out, do it. And they continue to not do it. And they let a remnant go and they let a remnant go. And it is on and on and on. Throughout the Bible, the Amalekites are a picture of our own flesh. The enemy that God tells us to put to death completely, but if we don't, when we don't, we continue to battle this enemy over and over and over again. But just like God gave Moses power to overcome the Amalekites, so too he has given his son, Jesus, who overcame the flesh through his death and resurrection and sent us his Holy Spirit's power to dwell in our hearts, to give us power to overcome our own flesh. Amen? Amen. Let's end there, shall we? Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, we've had some fun with your word today, but Lord, there's a seriousness that we don't, that's not lost on us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that as we go out of these doors today, that we would take uh, with us whatever it is that you had for each one of us today, whether it be uh, that or, um, Lord, that we are to be different and known to be different, that we're to be honest, that we're not to cheat one another. Lord, that we would recognize that you sent your son Jesus as our inheritance and consider us co-heirs with him. Lord, that we recognize that you sent your son Jesus to die for our sins on the cross 
so that we could be able to overcome our flesh and be every day transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, so much. We ask for your blessing here today on each and every one of us as we go out these doors, Lord. Please keep us safe in an increasingly unsafe world. Lord, we desperately look for your return. But Lord, let it not be until everyone has had a chance to hear and receive the gospel of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Thank you.